Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. I wanted to make a prefatory remark about who are the real experts you need to hear from. Okay? Number one, former case officers of the KGB. Okay? The people who funded this kind of theology and um, church institutions that would adhere to it and then funded the revolutions which this kind of theology uh, praised. Number two, U.S. national security experts, okay? Because it, I would love to know, and I'm sure you would like to know also, where this ideology is still functioning. I think it's still playing a role in Venezuela, uh, maybe in Bolivia, um, but there are still places where this kind of dangerous theology is being practiced and people are being deceived. It's possible that Argentina is another such place. We shall see. All right, I remind you of um, where I left off before. I said we're going to start with a question, very broad question. What is the relationship between the kingdom of God and the public things of this world? The city, the state, the school system, the economy. What is the relation between the kingdom of God and those public things of this world. What most people don't know is that the standard and correct answer to that question is nowadays known as the Christendom model. Okay? It prevailed from the reign of the Emperor Constantine down until about 1938, okay? Who here was born before 1938? Ah, somebody made it, very good. Still, you guys were children when the Christendom model disappeared from theological favor. The experts turned against it. But what did the Christendom model say? What was it about? 
And I think uh, if I summarize it in a few points, you'll recognize many ideas you already hold and inherited. First of all, temporal realities do not have some autonomous mission that prevents the church from using them for her own ends. Think about the formation of Christian civilization. What did we do? We took over institutions of the late Roman Empire and we Christianized them. The schools, colleges, such as there were, um, the government became a Christian empire. And so we just felt free. The fathers of the church just felt free, free to use the church's growing numbers and influence to take over the direction of these institutions and in some measure Christianize them. Now, the church in the Christendom model, get this, is the exclusive depository of salvation. This is what gives her a divine right, so to speak, to take over and um, change, to some extent, other institutions. The church never denatured a school so that it was no longer a school. It remained a school, but it was Christianized. Uh, guilds, for example, uh, economic organizations, uh, people who were skilled in various areas, the church took those over, not changing them into something else, but Christianizing them, giving them patron saints, feast days for those patron saints, and so on. Now, in the Christendom model, there is no salvation outside the church. Okay? Now, that statement has to be understood carefully. Always did need careful understanding because I can show you passages in medieval and um, early modern theologians where they're already saying, well, if you can have a baptism of desire and be in the church that way, and even though you've got no institutional connection. I didn't say that there's no salvation without being a member of the church, officially, baptized and on a parish roll somewhere. I never said that. But all salvation comes into the world through the church, just as it comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and salvation came by Jesus Christ, and hence through his church. And again, there are important ways you have to nuance that so that you don't sound like a bigot, but that's the basic reality. And so the church in the Christendom model is the center of God's plan of salvation. What God wants to see happen in history is centered on his plans for the church. Okay? The church is the center. <clears throat> 
And to put it another way, in this view, the church is the heart of history. Okay. Stuff going on elsewhere, yeah, outer Mongolia and so on, all no doubt very interesting. But the heart of history is what's happening in the church and through the church. And of course, this is why the church had to present herself as a powerful force over against the world. Okay? She had to acquire the power to resist the money, the temptations, the oppressions of the world. And that is not cheap. She had to be able to operate not only on the parish level and in the local school, but also on the civil, civic level and in the political arena. We had a clear understanding in the days of the Christendom model what the temporal tasks were that we were supposed to engage in as lay people. We were supposed to work for the direct benefit of the church. Okay? Anything that current turned up in politics that was a threat to the church, we were to oppose with our numbers and our votes. And we did. And um, for a while, we, we won those battles pretty well. Think of what the Legion of Decency did to clean up Hollywood. And think of how various attempts in state legislatures to prevent Catholic schooling were defeated. Okay? Blaine type amendments defeated. Okay. Christian politics then was a clear thing in the Christendom model. It meant assisting the church in her evangelizing mission and hence safeguarding the church's interests. You cannot trust the world to spread the gospel. The church needs the money to do it. What's hard to understand about that? And so, in this Christendom model, to sum up, there was a close unity between faith and social life. Okay? That close unity became known as Christendom. And um, it, um, it made people's lives in the Western world uh, joyful for a very long time. This Christendom model was out of theological fashion by the time you were born. It was no later than 1938 when theologians started taking another point of view. Now, we did not feel that change very quickly in this country. I don't think most people were aware of any change in our attitude on matters of church and state and socializing, sacralizing the world 
until after Vatican II. I remember how it was in the 50s. I'm old enough to remember that. Occasionally, some New York State legislator would take it into his head to sponsor a bill to liberalize abortion in New York. What happened? The Cardinals knew what to do. The yellow buses lined up in front of the parishes and took voters to the polls, and that creep never sat, set foot in Albany again. Okay? You need to exercise political, that's what we did. Suddenly, after Vatican II, we began to be told that that was a bad way to behave. This was, this, this was flexing muscle, political muscle. We, we, we shouldn't be doing that. We should just unite with all persons of goodwill. And it became increasingly clear that persons of goodwill were further and further to the left. Never mind. Now then, the Christendom model had an influence throughout the 19th century. The church sponsored efforts to restore Christian civilization throughout Europe where it had, where it had been disrupted. So they were in favor of the restoration of certain traditional monarchies. They were in favor of the restoration of the ban on divorce, which came and went in France no less than three times. Every time the liberals got in control of the French government, divorce was liberalized. And when we got control, it was stamped down again. So we were striving continually to return to that unity of faith and social life. But in 1938, a uh, French Thomist intellectual named Jacques Maritain, M-A-R-I-T-A-I-N, Jacques Maritain, published a book called Integral Humanism. Uh, he, he, did, he didn't mean um, what you might think by that. He meant, it would be a, a pro-human point of view that included all the supernatural aspects and so on. It was a sweet idea, but a dangerous book nevertheless. He used the point famous from St. Thomas's philosophy that grace does not replace or suppress nature. The things of this world, the institutions of this world, are natural institutions, and therefore grace can't take them over or Christianize them. So, what are those institutions that are now not to be sacralized anymore? What are they to do? Answer. They are to work towards a society based upon justice, respect for the rights of others, and human brotherhood. So the meaning of the state from now on will flow from these secular values and not from religion. This was Maritain's uh, big um, 
uh, innovation. Now, Maritain was not all that radical. He did still maintain that the church is the um, locus of God's action in the world. Uh, the church is still um, the, um, the place where you meet God. And so things must be done to preserve the church. But he just thought that if we stopped trying to restore reactionary right-wing regimes, the church would be left alone. You're all too young to remember this. So am I. But in Spain, in the early 1930s, there was a republic declared. And it was very liberal. It went to the left pretty far. What was the church in Spain doing in those days to resist the new Spanish Republic? Nothing. I don't know. But, despite that friendly, welcoming attitude by the church in Spain towards the new Republican government, the new Republican government did not reciprocate the hand of peace. Instead, they unleashed all kinds of anarchist mobs Nunneries were sacked and burned. Do you know 30,000 nuns were killed in the three years of the Spanish Republic? 9,000 priests put up against the wall and shot. Yes. Well, uh, that went on uh, in its own bloody way until a hero of mine, a man named General Franco, raised the uh, flag of rebellion, brought his army over from Morocco, and eventually defeated the Spanish Republic, for which the left has never forgiven him. Anyway, Maritain thus was calling for a new Christendom, a Christendom in which the things of the state, public order, and so on would not be sacralized but would still work for justice and peace, and the church would be able to cooperate with that without too much trouble. Okay. How long did the new Christendom model last? Well, it did not even last until Vatican II. Nope. In the middle of the 50s, Maritain's view began to be rejected by the more adventurous French theologians. They took up the thinking of a Dominican named Congar, C-O-N-G-A-R, first name Yves, Y-V-E-S, C-O-N-G-A-R, Yves Congar. And Congar's position was radical. And then he said, look, we don't need a new Christendom. We should never have had the old one. Christendom was a false thing to start. You did bad, Constantine. All you bishops at Nicaea and Chalcedon who supported the Christian Roman Empire, you did bad. That was trying to establish a church of 
power and influence in this world. That can't happen. That shouldn't happen. The church has to remain the little flock of Jesus, the little sphere apart of salvation. And it's not to have any worldly role at all, except, well, they can preach nice things. Okay. But other than that, no role in this world. So Christendom is to be utterly undone. Now, subtext here. The institutions of this world are now declared to be totally autonomous. Not only with respect to the church's hierarchy, okay, the bishops can't order the state around, that's fine. But also with respect to the church's mission. The state shouldn't recognize any need to worry about the salvation of the citizens or protect the rights of the church for that reason. No, 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 no. The church does, uh, gets along on its own as the little flock apart and the state is part of a new dynamic that I mentioned briefly last time. That new dynamic began with the Whig theory of history, W-H-I-G. The Whigs maintained that if you looked at human history over the whole stretch from the ancient Greeks until now, what you saw was a progressive movement towards ordered liberty, okay? Now, I do see a movement of that kind, but I don't see it everywhere. I don't see it as all of history, and I don't see it as nearly as influential as the evangelizing and acculturating work of the Catholic Church. A great deal was accomplished by God in history between the age of Constantine and the meeting of those barons on the plains of Runnymede. But if you read Whig history, you never hear about it. History is the sort of thing that never happened in uh, Vienna. Curious, yes? So anyway, um, temporal affairs now had a mission of their own, namely to inspire a just temporal order. The soul, the church could function as sort of a, you know, like a, an inspiring voice in that project. She, she, she could sort of be the soul of society, but utterly uninfluential upon the body of society which was free to pursue its own objectives. So the church and the world would evolve separately. The world was evolving on its way to the future society of justice and peace, secularizing everything on the way, along the way, and um, the church just, you know, held her councils and defined a dogma here and there, and went on with its evangelizing business as best it could if the state would allow its missionaries in the territory. 
If a priest did anything in politics under the distinction of Plains model, the distinctive thing was you never know he was a priest. He would talk just like a secular politician, wouldn't wear the collar, would talk just like a secular politician and vote like a secular. Okay. What happened next is very interesting. Between the middle of the 60s and the start of the 70s, the distinction of Plains model fell apart. On the one hand, political movements in many Catholic countries, especially in Latin America, went so far to the left that the clergy could no longer encourage what they were doing. Um, bishops are not, <laughs> look, bishops are going to come out and say, yeah, you love thy neighbor. But if love thy neighbor means um, liquidate the class richer than thy neighbor, the bishops are never going to come out and say that. So these radical movements were going in a direction that, that the bishops could no longer follow. And then there began a huge alienation between the more and more radicalized Catholic lay movements and their own hierarchy. The radical laity and lower clergy began to denounce their own bishops as bourgeois, allies of the ruling class, running dogs of the bourgeoisie, etc. Yes. Simply because they said, look, we are here to represent spiritual values. We preach peace, we preach mercy, we preach love in Christ. Not, you know, class struggle. So for this, the bishops became more and more hated by radical lay and clerical groups in Latin America. Next, with the middle years of the 60s, came another thing that I mentioned last time. New confusion about the order of grace and the order of nature. The church had always taught a distinction between the natural and the supernatural. They both come from God. Right? But the natural order is like created things flowing out from God. And the supernatural order is like God's special action to recall his rational creatures to himself, to have a special society and fellowship with himself. Yes. And throughout church history, this has been a very strong distinction. It's what gave the church something unique. We were the institution that sought the supernatural good and sought to move mankind toward his supernatural end. 
Yes? Well, compromise in any, confuse, muck up in any way that distinction between nature and grace, and all of that clarity disappears. The church no longer has a really distinctive mission. Why? Because, because the radical lay groups that are uh, um, trying to bring down the bourgeoisie, I mean, they're also working for our supernatural good. Oh? Since when is social justice a supernatural good? Well, since nature and grace began to be confused, and the natural and supernatural could no longer be kept distinct. Now, with the breakdown of the distinction between nature and grace, something else broke down. Those two lines of evolution that I mentioned, the development of the church towards her supernatural goal, and the development of the world towards this allegedly just and glorious future. That gave theologians two stories to play with. And they could ask interesting questions. Well, like, how does the kingdom of God tie in to man's hopes for a glorious future in this life. How, how exactly is that going to work? And it was obviously too simple to say, well, um, once we uh, put all of our enemies under, uh, no, uh, once we put the bourgeoisie under our feet here in this world, why, um, uh, then um, the kingdom of God can just come down, break in. Yeah. Uh-huh. We used to have a Protestant heresy like that. It was called post-millennialism. The world would evolve towards a wonderful future, prosperous society, and when everything was just as ginchy as you thought it could possibly be, Jesus would come back and inaugurate his thousand-year reign. Oh, you go, Walt. Well, so nobody held that it was going to be completely continuous and that the work of justice had to be done completely first. But still, the two stories, they insisted on fusing them together. And as a result, the world's development became God's only storyline. What is God after achieving in history? Answer, human development. The supernatural kingdom of God and the bright future of the world are really the same thing. Huh? This was the basis for a decade's worth of Christian Marxist dialogues. Yes. You know, O oh Marxists, you shouldn't quite shoot us yet, because you know we believe in a bright future too, a future of justice and peace, and, and there's no private property in heaven either. <laughs> So leave us, the, and, 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 and the Marcus would say, well, you, you, you shouldn't be so quick to condemn us because we, we have similar hopes for the bright future. Yes. All right. And so 
everything was in place except one more element that I haven't mentioned yet tonight, and that is Marxist analysis. What told you what was justice? What told you what social oppression needed fixing? Answer, Marx's theory. Okay? And I have a number of uh, quotations I'd like to give you from uh, these liberation theologians on that very point here early in his book. Father Gustavo Gutierrez tells us, only a radical break from the status quo that is a profound transformation of the private property system, access to power by the exploited classes, and a social revolution that would break dependency. Only that would allow for the change to a new society, a socialist society. Okay? So, they weren't kidding when they were demanding a big break with the existing social order in Latin America and anywhere else. What made them think that they could just change the structures of society from top to bottom, as though society was a tinker toy thing that had been put together years ago by old monarchists or whoever, and now we could just tear it all down and redo it, according to our own modern taste. Who, didn't these people ever hear of a natural law that restricts the human possibilities? Huh? Have you ever heard of a society without private property that worked and wasn't a Franciscan monastery? Huh? Now, there are just limits on what people can be expected to endure. So how did, the, how did they think that this profound change was possible? The answer to that is very interesting. Comes just a page or so later. Uh, we read, man constructs himself and attains a real awareness of his own being. He liberates himself in the acquisition of genuine freedom, which through work transforms the world and educates man. Now, the footnotes on that page, to that page, are very interesting. We have here quotes from Hegel, and Marx. The idea that man makes himself in history is already in Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. Okay? Published, what, 1820? Earlier? And Marx said, quote, the outstanding achievement of Hegel's phenomenology is that Hegel conceives 
the self-creation of man is a process. He thus grasps the essence of labor and comprehends objective man, true because real man as the outcome of man's own labor. There it is, okay? Work hard with any crackpot theory in your brain that you want, and you're building this future according to your dreams, and it's going to work because, because, because you can do that. Okay? History is in your head. You're the actor. History is your drama. You're writing the play as it unfolds. You're creating your... What about God? Huh? Doesn't God create man? Well, of course, Hegel didn't think so. And Marx certainly didn't think so. And you can't bring this human self-creation stuff into Christian theology without tripping over an obvious distinction. Okay? The distinction is between my physical self and my character. Did I make my physical self? I jolly well did not. I wasn't in the womb with a hammer working on myself. Have I created my own character? Oh, yes. Every time I made a morally significant decision, I built the person I was becoming. Good person, bad person, lazy person, indulgent person, whatever sort of person I made of myself. Yes, everybody understands that. It's an elementary distinction. Marx tried to run with it to make people architects of their own being. Bye-bye, God. It's stupid. Nevertheless, people believe this kind of stuff. Now, what about um, um, this business uh, of uh, man being the, the, the author of his own destiny and so on and so on. What that really comes down to is a politics in which all that matters is goodwill. You know why we don't have world peace? We don't want it enough. Yeah. Ordinary people are, you know, they don't have faith in the coming world peace. They, they think we still need a nuke or two to defend. No, no, no. That's compromised thinking. No, just believe and want that peaceful future badly enough. And guess what? We can make it. We can make it. Okay? Now, you know, I'm a theologian. I don't have anything against miracles. <laughs> Not at all. But the idea that mankind can create a future in which wars don't happen anymore, I'm sorry, that is beyond my credence. I absolutely refuse to believe it. And you know what? I don't even believe the United Nations can take us there. <laughs> That means I'm not a person of faith, see? 
Because in this new world of things, faith becomes hope. To be a person of faith is to have hope in the bright, classless future that's coming if we only want it strongly enough. Yes. Of course, there is a totalitarian implication in all this. And um, the totalitarian implication comes out in the idea that politics is the universal determinant and collective arena for what? Human fulfillment. It's going to come through work in politics. Yes. Changing the government. Changing the economic system. Yeah. Occupying Wall Street. Yes. Yes. You're not really a person of faith unless, unless, unless you will to introduce change in politics. Okay? Are you somebody who thinks that, you know, you can do better in your private life and, 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 and make yourself more self-disciplined and, and overcome your vices and so on? That doesn't make you a person of faith. No, no, no. You're not a person of faith unless you have hopes about the secular future of the economy and the state. Politics. Politics is now the universal arena of human fulfillment. If that's the case, well, if you take the wrong side in politics, you are against human fulfillment. Eek. I didn't know it was so bad, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, one more thing. I'm going to skip about the class struggle. You all know about that. I'm going to give you a quote about private property. It's a goodie. <sighs> Says Gutierrez, we refer to the progressive radicalization of the debate concerning private property. The subordination of private property to the social good has been stressed often. But difficulties in reconciling justice and private ownership have led many to the conviction that private ownership of capital leads to the dichotomy of capital and labor, to the superiority of the capitalist over the laborer, to the exploitation of man by man. The history of the private ownership of the means of production makes evident the necessity of its reduction or <clears throat> suppression for the welfare of society. We must hence opt for social ownership of the means of production. Okay. I said there was a totalitarian implication in all of this. Not only do you have to be on the right side in politics, otherwise you're an enemy of human being, but, but it's like this, okay? Private property is the average person's one and only safeguard against the power of the state. 
They can't make me starve because I got a plot of land. I grow my own vegetables on it. They can't take away my ration card because I have private property. I have means. They can't throw me out of the street because I own a house. You know? Take away private property and you are a reed in the wind. The government blows with gale force and you have no hope but to go along unless you want to experience uh, human fulfillment in a gulag. Isn't it interesting? I know history doesn't really repeat itself, but isn't it interesting how predictable the history of socialist regimes is? They always arrive amidst great glowing hopes, oh boy, and pretty soon there's a secret police. Pretty soon there are ration cards. Pretty soon there are neighborhood block supervisors, as Castro brought into Cuba, keeping the eye on everybody on the block. Are they um, uh, raising the, uh, the clenched fist often enough? Are they supporting Fidel vocally enough? If not, oh, I'm sorry, comrade, we have to take away your ration card. You are showing signs of bourgeois backsliding. Yeah. I read in this book I've been quoting from a remarkable statement about what all we liberationists, what all we want to liberate man from. We want to liberate man from sin. Oh, that sounds right, yeah, yeah. That is, he goes on, liberate him from every failure of love. Think about that. Is a sin a failure of love? Well, for God, yeah, that's, that's true. It's a failure of love for God. But, um, okay, so your neighbor didn't give you a job. He didn't give you enough love. So since I want to liberate you from all such experiences of unloving conduct, I'm going to expropriate your neighbor. I'll take his business and give you the job myself. Is it equally easy to liquidate uh, bureaucrats? <laughs> what in the world is more unloving than a typical socialist bureaucrat? Anyway, and it doesn't stop with economics. Suppose I don't feel that I've been loved. <laughs> My neighbors are not loving me. They're not letting me love in my own way. Why is that? Well, it's because I want to love my boyfriend. And they're not letting me do that. So integral liberation is going to require removing people who are, um, what's the term? Homophobic. 
bye-bye to them, liquidate them. Yes. Now what happens when somebody needs liberation from those of us who won't let him love his horse, his goat? Uh-huh. We're sex, we're, no, we are um, not sex, we're speciesists. We want to restrict this poor man's ability to love to our own species. Oh, how narrow-minded can we be? And so stranger and stranger and stranger positions become counterproductive to human fulfillment. And so the gulag has to keep growing. More and more dissenters belong there. Isn't that sweet? What a glorious future this is going to be. Yes. When we're all in prison except a handful, a handful of uh, transsexuals. What do you think? What do you think? Anyway, the left in the church has bought into some of this stuff. A recent governor of Virginia, a fellow named Tim Kaine, bought into liberation theology when he was, well, 20 years ago when he was in Latin America. And uh, people are full of this idea that you're a person of faith if you believe in the glorious secular future. Well, I tell you what, if that's what it takes, I'm an infidel. Because I don't believe a word of it. My faith is not in a future down here, but in one up there. The difference is between secular hope and patristic anagogy. You want to see the future? Don't look ahead. Look up. Look up to heaven. See the kingdom of the saints. See the resurrection <coughs> of Our Lady. That's your future. And uh, if you remain in a state of grace, you'll reach it. End of sermon. Thank you very much. Amen. Doctor, is there a relationship between the effect of the Protestant Revolution in the 16th century and liberation theology? Formation did was seriously weaken the influence of the church's hierarchy, creating whole nations in which the hierarchy had no influence at all. That led to an increasing secularization of political power, especially because of the unhappy outcome of the Thirty Years' War. People, by the end of that war, people were so sick and tired of sectarian warfare that they said, oh heck, let's just have a secular state. The king will have his religion in his chapel, that makes the country Protestant or not, and the rest of us will just go to our chapel, and then religion is privatized. Okay? So there is an indirect influence, long and dangerous. Dr. Marsh, Dr. Marshner, it, before their deaths, 
was there any redeeming qualities of Jacques Maritain's and Yves Congar's work? Oh, yeah. Congar uh, was um, a half de I mean, quite a decent theologian. He just sort of kept his mouth off of church and state stuff where his native leftism led him astray. But uh, as far as Trinitarian theology, theology of grace and so on, ecclesiology is pretty good. Uh, I have a profound disagreement with him about a subject I'm not going to mention tonight. But, uh, and Maritain, for all of his horrible errors, turned around in the end and wrote a book called The Peasant of the Garonne. Because he saw what was done with his ideas at Vatican II. And he said, yikes, this is not what I meant. So, yeah, saving graces here and there, plenty of them. Okay, we have one coming in from Teresa Carter online. She asks, can you clarify what was the confusion about the order of grace and the order of nature? The confusion was whether man um, had a um, natural yearning for the supernatural, okay? Classical theology in the West said no, following Aristotle. Man's natural yearnings are for the goods natural to him. Whereas many of the church fathers said, no, 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 man is so created for God and the kingdom of heaven that he can really have no other fulfillment. Okay. Um, Henri de Lubac picked up on that strand of patristic thought and unfortunately ran wild with it, attacked perfectly good Western theologians for not holding it, and introduced a position that is just pretty hard to explain, okay? You can't thrive, you can't have fulfillment without the beatific vision, okay? And God wouldn't create you unless he could give you fulfillment, okay? So God could not have created man without calling him to supernatural fulfillment. Pius XII saw that proposition in Maritain and said, wait a minute, you can't, uh, in uh, Lubach, you can't say that. And Lubach said, oh, didn't say it, didn't mean it. So what did he mean? Well, I wrote a dissertation about this. And uh, if you are truly in a penitential spirit someday, uh, you can get a copy and read it. Thank you, Dr. Marshner. Can you uh, comment upon Eric Vogelin's warning against uh, immunizing the eschaton and his attribution of this to a, a new rising form of Gnosticism? Yeah. Well, that's a long answer. That would be a whole lecture in its own right. 
Eric Vogelin was, how to put this, in religion something of a modernist, but a right-wing modernist who did not favor at all the um, socialist dreams and um, wrote profoundly about the false conception of the social order that was in, involved in those dreams. Um, no, Vogelin is very much worth reading. New Science of Politics, wonderful book, um, but um, um, when it comes to religion, he thinks it's all symbolism. Enough. What else? Uh, we have a question from Ida, a friend of the Institute, writing in from online. She asked, in regard to the term justice and peace, did Jacques Maritain or another 20th century theologian term it in integral humanism or other work, or did he assume a term already in existence? Did he change its meaning? I don't think I can answer that. Uh, justice and peace is certainly a common enough phrase. I, I don't know who coined it. Uh, I do know that during the 60s, uh, the phrase became official when a um, congregation was set up in the Vatican for justice and peace. Okay. And um, so far as I can tell, they've never done anything good, but they had that name and it's been an official name ever since. And certainly Maritain used that terminology, but I don't know that he would have invented that particular conjunction. Who do you see as uh, carrying on the liberation theology uh, concept uh, today? Uh, is J.B. Metz dead? I don't know. Johann Batista Metz as a uh, pupil of Rahner and invented something called political theology, which is as nearly Marxist as it needs to be to be horrible. Um, the trouble is, um, usually these days, people who really favor this theology don't use the classic phraseology of Marxism anymore. It is too well discredited. And so they will talk about liberation in other dimensions, more social dimensions like sexual dimensions and so on, whatever. Um, so, uh, but there have been a few people. The Reverend Jeremiah Wright preached something that he called black liberation theology. Everybody remember that? Oh, yes. And, um, I'm sure that there are feminist liberation theologians. I just decline to remember their names. Dr. Marshner, uh, <clears throat> what was the state of the church's social doctrine when these models were coming into being? Was it such that they, the church could hold it up and say, no, this is the way it's supposed to be? The church could hold up 
um, her traditional pastoral practice as late as 1910, okay, when St. Pius X put out an important statement to the French called Notre Charge Apostolique, our apostolic duty, in which he condemned a Christian democratic youth movement that had gone off the rails in a utopian direction. That movement was called the Sion, S-I-L-L-O-N. Le Sion. And um, what Pius X said in that wonderful document is, we do not wait for a city to be built in the clouds. Okay? The, Christian, the Christian state we seek, the Christian society we seek, is the traditional cité catholique, the traditional Catholic society. Okay? Now, it isn't that that pastoral practice, that pastoral standard, could no longer be maintained. It's that the paid intellectuals who do the bishop's thinking for them didn't want to defend it anymore. They wanted to side with oh, new initiatives. Oh, you, we, don't, we don't need to be so hostile to modern man's secular hopes. Modern man won't like us if we tell him that his dream city of the future is a fiction. No, we have to seem more pastoral, more caring, more loving. Oh, people, believe. Keep your hopes. Jesus won't take away your secular hopes. No, no, no. No, but the secular saviors they invent for themselves will jolly well take away those hopes. What's up? Is that it? Well, we have uh, John, our AV specialist extraordinaire, has informed us that Psalm 8510 says that mercy and truth are met together, injustice and peace have kissed. So there you go. There you go. It's in the Bible. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Thank you all very much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.